be with you this morning. Um, I shared with someone that uh, for some reason this text has been hard for me this week, uh, pulling this together. So I hope uh, and pray that the Holy Spirit will still be a part of helping us to uh, understand what Jesus' heart is. We're currently in a series on Sermon on the Mount, and I've referenced each week the importance that I think is upon us as we look at this text as well as any of the texts of Jesus' teaching, that Jesus is explaining and declaring now available eternal kind of life that's available through Him. And the Sermon on the Mount comes immediately following a time of healing and a demonstration of the kingdom. And here Jesus now is saying, this is what that is about. This morning we're going to look at a few of the next, next few verses, uh, particularly where Jesus makes statements about the law and the prophets as a preface to the upcoming comparisons he's going to make between the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees and his own teaching. Here's what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Before we look at this passage, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for... Uh, the teaching that you have provided to us through your word. Thank you for the disciples who were so responsible um, with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to uh, remember and pull together the uh, stories and the teaching that you provided that we can understand more about this eternal kind of life that you have invited us to. And I ask that you would help us this morning to connect with your heart what you have for us. Holy Spirit, we are dependent upon you. Would you now teach and bring to mind and heart those truths, those understandings, that you would highlight what it is that you want highlighted for each of us, that we might uh, gain from you new thoughtfulness and understanding of how to live this life, this eternal kind of life that you have given us in Jesus' name. Let it be so. So let's look at the first two sentences of these verses. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. A year ago, I spent numerous weeks leading up to and following Easter, teaching on the Christian doctrine commonly called the atonement. And when most Christians think of the atonement, they think of Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, which for sure is a part of this atonement that he provided. But 
the English word atonement originally meant at one meant, meaning to be in harmony with someone. And it is essentially related to the work of Jesus bringing us into at one with God. And so it is broader than just the cross. While the cross was a significant part of that, in reality, all of the, all of the elements of the Christ event, Jesus' incarnation, conception, birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification were all a part of the atonement and His bringing us into at one with God. That said, when Jesus said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and He spoke of all being accomplished, He was saying that He Himself his life, his death, his resurrection was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In Jesus' very first appearance to the twelve disciples following his resurrection, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. In and through Jesus, something as significant as heaven and earth passing away occurred, and the world changed, as did the role of the law and the prophets. In the book, God and the World, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope from 2005 to 2013 in the Catholic Church, is quoted as saying this, Christ does not come as a lawbreaker. He does not come in order to declare the law invalid or meaningless. Christ comes in order to complete it. But that also means in order to lift the law up onto a higher level. He fulfills the law in His suffering, in His life, in His message. And now what happens is that the whole law finds its meaning in Him. Everything that was intended by it, everything it aimed for, is truly realized in Jesus and in His person. That is why we no longer need to fulfill the law according to the letter in the way its prescriptions regulate everything down to the last detail, our fellowship with Christ means that we are in the sphere where the law is fulfilled, where it has found its true place, where it is quite literally lifted up to a higher level that is both preserved and at the same time is transformed. The law and the prophets, as it was known at the time of Jesus, had become twisted, embellished, expanded, and made into lists of rules and regulations beyond what God had intended. It essentially glamorized the rich, the educated, the well-born, the popular, the powerful, the religious upper echelon as those who were in possession of God. 
And it left out the poor, the working class, the uneducated, the weak, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, those without power. Jesus came along and turned this all upside down. Remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about the Beatitudes not being things to admire or seek to become, but rather as pictures or portraits of the kinds of people who were now through Jesus experiencing the kingdom of God and being invited to enter into this eternal kind of life that Jesus was offering. Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount is not about abolishing the law, nor establishing a new law or some new moral system. Jesus was describing to those in this crowd a new kind of life, a life based around Him and the kingdom of God, a life of relationship with God, and a life living out the fulfillment of the law. It's significant that when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment, that he replied by summarizing and restating it around the theme of love. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And one of the reasons for that question by a scribe was to say, okay, which are the ones that are really important and which are the ones that are not so important? And our text is referencing that exact thing. Which one is the greatest? What is it that I really need to pay attention to? And Jesus said, what you really need to pay attention to is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is profound. Jesus is not saying all of that is, is uh, done away with. He is simply summarizing and giving us an understanding about what that was all about to a people who were rule-oriented, law-oriented. And He has come now to say, no, in the kingdom, in this eternal kind of life, it's about relationship. It's about loving and having connected relationship with God and loving and connected relationship with one another. That's what it's all about. And in me, he's saying, you can see this. Look at my life. Watch how I've lived. This is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Rather than lists of rules and regulations to follow, Jesus says everything in the Law and the Prophets is summarized here. Love God and love others. In this, Jesus does not abolish the Law, but minimizes its role and reframes the goal of life in the kingdom to be the standard of love of God and love of others. This will be evident when we look in a few weeks at the comparisons that he is going to make in the forthcoming material when he discusses anger, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies. Let's look at the next two statements. Therefore, whoever breaks 
one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This first statement is described by many as the hardest verse to understand in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And it has been for me this week. After a lot of reading, biblical comparison, here's where I am at this point. The interpretive key for the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus, having just demonstrated the presence of the kingdom of God just prior to this teaching, he is now explaining to the crowds about life in the kingdom of God. Not a life after we die, but a life now. The kingdom of God is here. It's near. It's within grasp. You can enter it, he said to the people of that day, and he says to us. And these next statements are directly targeted at the faulty way that the scribes and Pharisees practiced and taught the commandments. Scholars suggest that it is probable that the Pharisees divided the precepts of the law into lesser and greater, as I've referenced. They also minimized some of the precepts while elevating others. And frequently they did this for their own personal benefit. We know a lot about this from a lengthy discourse by Jesus in Matthew 23. While there's not time to look at all of these declarations, I want to look at a couple of Jesus' statements to help us understand his distress with the scribes and the Pharisees and what his intention is in the statement he made in our text this morning, where he references the need to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Here are some of Jesus' statements from Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4. The scribes and Pharisees are competent teachers in God's law. You won't go wrong in following their teachings on Moses, but be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all spit and polish veneer. Instead of giving you God's law as food and drink by which you can banquet on God, they package it in bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under these loads and wouldn't lift a finger to help. Message translation, I thought very fun. Verses 16 through 22, skipping quite a few of the statements. Woe to you blind guides who, who say whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. 
And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by the one who is seated upon it. I hope you can catch that the Pharisees and scribes are making these silly distinctions on one hand. But in this particular one, Jesus is highlighting this aspect that they are elevating gold above the temple itself, considered by the Jews as the house of God. They were materialists. And they were constantly twisting and turning and teaching in such ways that their kind of life, the life that they have deemed to be best, is honored and uplifted. And God is minimized. The, in, the relationship aspect of God that was very much in the heart of the law and the prophets Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength was in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament when he stated that passage is the greatest. But he's highlighting, he's taking, he's taking, he's summarizing. And here are these Pharisees and scribes who are teaching in ways that are just minimizing God and elevating themselves and their lifestyle, the life the way they wanted it. The third one I would share here, 23 and 24 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. The point is, it is clear that Jesus' statements about them, that the scribes and Pharisees were doing exactly what he had described in Matthew 5.19, breaking the least of the commandments and teaching others to do the same. And then in the last sentence, Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is not life after we die. The kingdom of heaven is relationship with God. Let's just translate that every time we see it. You will never enter into relationship with God unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was an external hypocritical righteousness that had not penetrated to their hearts. Hippopotamus. Hypocritical. Hypocritical. Here's another Jesus' statement from Matthew 23 referencing this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside are full of bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Even more significant than this hypocrisy was their religiosity without relationship. 
Do you remember the story of God speaking to Moses at the burning bush? After telling Moses to remove his sandals, the voice Moses heard said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not a distant, unknowable God who needs to somehow be appeased as the gods of the uh, Canaanites and those around Israel. God is a present God, one who is with us, a God of relationships. He is the God of people with names. What Jesus is saying in this last statement in Matthew 5 is that in contrast to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that was formal, external, and devoid of relationship, the righteousness of those living in the kingdom of God is to be a righteousness that is eternal, that is of the heart, that is internal, and it's one of relationship. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of a future covenant which we know to be the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus brought that describes the very thing Jesus is referencing here. Listen to these words from Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in future days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jeremiah, looking ahead, prophetically understands that the law and the prophets has missed in leading the people adequately to relationship with God. Maybe he understood that, maybe he didn't. But here he is pointing forward to the kingdom of God the eternal kind of life that will be based around relationship. And what is this law that is written on our hearts? And how does it get written on our hearts? The law that is written is not complicated. It's not very long. The law that is written on our hearts is the law of love of God and love of others. Can you say that with me? The law of love of God and love of others. Love of God and love of others. All of the law and the prophets are summarized in that. If we will keep in mind and burn into our hearts a commitment of relationship of love. Like Christ, we will fulfill all of the law and the prophets. Love of God and love of others, written there like a tattoo on our hearts as we experience and embrace God's love for us. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4.19, We love because God first loved us. Or as our church narrative describes it, 
as we experience God's great love for us, we love Him, we love one another, and we love His lost and hurting world. A righteousness that exceeds external effort, that doesn't deal with the heart, a righteousness that has been provided to us by Christ Himself, clothing us in His righteousness and inscribing with us through His love to us the means through the empowering presence of God to love God and love others. That's the heart of life in the kingdom, the eternal kind of life that God has called us to. As we close, I want to uh, invite you for a moment to reflect on the words of the love of God and love of others. I want you to reflect for a moment and consider how, is, how are those truths being manifested in my life? How am I doing? And all of us will fall short, but all that means is there's opportunity for growth. Leave the knives down. Those of you who were here last week, no picking up the knives. And invite God to be with you as you leave from here this morning, as you go to live in the kingdom, as you go to live the eternal kind of life, love of God and love of others. Just take a moment on your own. And reflect on those words, reflect on your life, and ask God, God, what, what are you inviting? What, what's the area, what, what's the circumstance that you want to highlight to me this morning? What's your invitation to me? Papa, Jesus, Holy Spirit, What an amazing demonstration of love that we have seen in the Christ event. That you so loved that you sent your son. And it is through experiencing your love that we can love. For when we live according to law, rules and regulations and outward manifestations, we're left empty, incapable. But when we embrace and welcome your love, your healing, your cleansing, your mending, your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace, we are changed. Heaven and earth is changed. And we are new creations. 
with old things passing away and a life that becomes brand new. So we say again, yes, Lord. We say yes to your love. We say yes to your forgiveness. Yes to your mercy. Yes to your empowering presence. Enabling us to be more than what we can be on our own. and To do more than we can do on our own. Because we do it with you. A life lived with God. The with God life. Let it be so. Let it be so. And might we be those who not only embrace and receive and welcome this incredible gift, might we be those who turn to those who are yet struggling, drowning, who are in up over their heads in turmoil and pain. Let us share with them about your love and reach out the hand that Jesus reached out to us who says, come to me, all you who are struggling. I will give you rest. It is in your work not ours, that we are saved. And it is in your work, not ours, that we live. But we do that together with you. In Jesus' name, let it be so. Thanks for hanging out with us this morning. Hope you connected with God. Thanks, worship team. Always a blessing here at our little church, our worship teams. It's the conclusion of our time together this morning. If you would like prayer, if you would like to chat with somebody, if you are here this morning and you came with a burden, a struggle, a difficulty, maybe you've come, you're facing uh, an illness or a concern about a loved one, uh, we have folks that will be up here at the front, would love a chance to talk with you, to pray with you. Uh, if you would so allow us to partner with God with you. Grace and peace might you experience a with God life this week. And we'll see you next week. All my sins are gone.